The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, just first off, yes, that was the same video from last week. Um, I forgot to send in a new one. It's fine. It actually plays well into how I'm going to introduce this sermon, so it's all good. Um, so this is the third and final week of Judges, so I'm done preaching on Judges after this Sunday. You're welcome. Yeah, it's, I, it's not an easy book, and so obviously preaching on it for three weeks and hearing three consecutive sermons on Judges could easily get kind of depressing. And uh, <laughs> let me tell you, this Sunday's not any better. Um, so I, I promise that next week and the following weeks I'll preach like really happy, uplifting things for a while to kind of make up for it. I feel like I have to. <laughs> so th this is going to be sort of the first part in the book of Judges, these last uh, three or four chapters, where um, there are no judges. And in all the other stories, you know, even as bad as things get and as dark as they get, um, you can at least kind of take solace in the, in, in the knowledge that at least God is still acting to save his people from the messes they get themselves into. God still intervenes and protects them. But you get into the, the end of the book, and, and it actually seems as though that is not happening anymore. It doesn't seem like God is all that involved in what they're doing. It doesn't seem like God is intervening to save them from the messes they get themselves into. And, and actually, by this point in the story, all the problems they're going to have, have have shifted. And now, instead of trying to fight off enemies from the outside, all of their conflicts become internal conflicts. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, 
I solemnly consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, just as a little side note, you know, it mentions the 1,100 shekels of silver, which happens to be the same amount of silver that was given to Delilah for betraying Samson. And so there's some biblical scholars who think that actually the, the point of mentioning that amount is to highlight that this is Delilah and that Micah is Samson's son. Now, it's not relevant to the story at all, but this is a sad, depressing story, and you need some fun facts to uplift you as we go through it. So there's your fun fact. And it already, already there's weird stuff going on here, right? Because it starts off with, obviously, uh, he's stolen this silver from his mother and he's giving it back. And she's so relieved that he just admitted he stole from her that she gives him part of the silver back, right? How bad do things have to get that, that you're just so happy he actually told you he stole the silver that you give him some of the money back, right? It's already getting weird and dark, and then he goes, and what does she do? She says, I'm going to consecrate this to the Lord so you can make an idol of another god. Which is something, of course, they're explicitly told they're not supposed to do, right? That is one of the Ten Commandments. And then makes one of his sons the priest. And actually what will happen after that is, is eventually he's going to find a Levite, right? One of the people who are part of the official priestly caste of Israel he's going to hire that guy to become the new priest. right? Because then that gives him some legitimacy to this new religion he's starting. I mean, think about this. He's just invented a new religion and, and made up his own god to worship. Hey, guys, come worship my new god. I made it. Isn't it really great? This one doesn't ask you to do anything. It's awesome. <laughs> Way easier to worship this god than the one who brought us out of Egypt. There's no rules with this one. Just come and give me your money. Right? because you know there's a money-making scheme involved in that somewhere. And it seems at first like this is just kind of an odd story, but it does play a, a role in what is about to happen next. But, but also it just serves to highlight um, how bad things have gotten. That they're, they're, not, they're no longer just turning to worship the gods of the pagan peoples who lived in the land before them. Now they're actually going so far as to invent all brand new religions, to build their own brand new idols. And so the, this next portion of the story, you're going to hear about the, the tribe of Dan, and, and it talks about them trying to find a place of their own. And if you think back to the story of Samson, you remember that, that that's the tribe Samson is from, and there's all these conflicts with the Philistines. Well, the, the tribe of Dan originally gets settled on sort of the southwestern part of, of where the Israelites have come into Israel. And that means that they are the tribe that borders the Philistines, and so they're actually constantly in conflict with them, and there's military pressure, and there's economic pressure, and eventually, right around this time, the, the tribe of Dan decides just to give it up, and they leave the place where they've settled, and they're migrating through the rest of Israel to try and find someplace safer to live. So in chapter 18, uh, in those days, Israel had no king, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtael to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. 
So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite who he's just hired. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for them, for him, and said, He's hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. You notice he doesn't actually ask God about that. Um, <laughs> there's no point. Normally they would say, Well, let me go and talk to God first. This guy just says, No, it's fine. Keep going. It's okay. No problems. So they go on and they, they find this city called Laish and they decide that that's where they want to settle. And so they go back and now they end up coming back in force and they, they will essentially raid Micah's house and take his idol and abduct this young priest to be their new religion. And then they continue on their journey to this new city where they're going to settle. So the story picks up in verse 27. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in the valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So a lot of horrible things happen here, right? First, they go and they find a city. So instead of like finding an empty place where they can settle and, and, and peacefully inhabit a new land, they, they decide they really like this city over here. And so they attack it, they kill everyone in it, they burn it down and build a new city on that spot. Just to be clear, um, that's the sort of thing God's not okay with. <laughs> and you notice that nowhere in the story is it saying, and God was fine with them doing this. No. No, the narrator is actually silent on how God is viewing all of this. Except he points out they're, they're peaceful. They're secure. They're not doing anything to hurt anybody. Implying that there's really no justification for this. And then they set up their idol. And do you notice that now they give the genealogy of this priest, Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Now the timeline is kind of odd here. But either, either this is literally true and it's Moses' grandson or it's kind of using the metaphorical language they like to use a lot where he's, you know, this is one of Moses' direct descendants. So it's either his grandson or like his great, 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 great grandson. But either way, they're saying, the priests who are in charge of this fake religion that they've just made up are Moses' direct descendants. In other words, look how far Israel has fallen that even Moses' descendants are now leading this false religion. By the time you end that story, you're supposed to be just sort of shocked and appalled at, at, at just how it could have gotten to that place. Because as you'll see, no one else in Israel seems to care that this tribe has just gone up and wiped out a city and claimed it for themselves. And none of them seem to actually care that they've set up a false religion and made an idol and are worshiping it. And the story's about to get worse. In Judges 19, verse 1, In those days Israel had no king. 
Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. After she had been there four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So it starts off not that bad, right? His, his concubine, which is like one of his second wives, which is kind of a problem, but in, like the, in, in comparison to the rest of judges, that one's fairly innocent, right? So one of his wives has left him. He's going to chase after her. He's going to, he's going to get his wife back. And he goes, and, and, and it seems like it's going well. He manages to convince her to return, um, right? And, and it seems it's a happy moment. And he's you know, staying with the father-in-law for several days. And then they start their journey back. And, and you know, going from Bethlehem up to Ephraim, they're crossing through like all of the inhabited territory of Israel. And they're going to get to this point where you know, it's, the sun is setting. They've got to stay somewhere for the night. And the way that works in the ancient world is you find the nearest town or city and you go in there and you sit in the, the main square of the town and you wait for someone to invite you into their home. Because hotels and inns and things like that are not really very common yet. And so really all throughout this part of the world in that day and age, hospitality is a sacred, sacred value. Everyone agrees that when you have a stranger traveling through your town, you ought to be hospitable to them. And it's really interesting because that, that applies cross-culturally. You can walk through the territory of a nation that is your sworn enemy, and if you're alone and unarmed, they will take you into their house and feed you. That's how seriously they take this. Because it's true for everyone. Anytime you are traveling, if you ever have a need to travel to another place overnight, you're going to have to rely on someone's hospitality to keep you safe at night. So they come up, and there's, there's you know two cities they can go through, and one... They name it as the city of Jebus, home of the Jebusites, and that city will one day be renamed Jerusalem. But at this time, it's still inhabited by the Canaanites. They haven't taken it yet, so it's a Canaanite city. And they, they choose to pass that up, even though it's closer, because that's the Canaanite city, and who knows how we're going to get treated there. Let's go ahead to Gibeah, because that's full of our people. And so we pick up in verse 16 of chapter 19. They've gotten into Gibeah. And that evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, and the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We're on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys, and after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Now, because hospitality is such an important virtue in this day and age, an ancient reader hearing this story it's already going to get that feeling you get at the beginning of a horror movie where you know something's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. Just because they're sitting in the town square all day, the sun goes down and no one's taken them in yet. Right? The ominous background music has started to play. Already that's a signal that this is a dangerous place to be. Because anywhere else, they should have been taken in. 
And, and then the old man who finally, who's not a local, right? It's very, they, they take pains to specify he is not from there. He's the one who takes them in and has this line, please don't spend the night in the square, right? Because he knows, you know, if you're out here and they see you out here, you're, you're <laughs> don't, just please, come with me. And so it seems like they're safe for the moment. And then in verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. And you should be thinking back to Genesis to the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happens there. And again, it's intentional. Look at the people of Israel who are now doing the exact same thing for which God condemned those cities. And so in verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Now again, to be clear, God's not okay with that. I mean, just think about this. These men are willing to sacrifice their daughter, their wife, to protect themselves. It's the, exact, it's the antithesis of everything God has tried to teach his people so far. In verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside of them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. All kinds of horrible things happening, right? First you have this man who... who tosses his wife out to the crowd knowing full well what's about to happen to her. And obviously what, what is done to her is evil and, and, and appalling and, and to, to a degree that is really truly hard to comprehend. But you can't escape the fact that what this Levite does is just as wrong. And he doesn't even seem bothered or concerned by it, right? It seems like he slept all night long in the house peacefully and is getting ready to go on his way in the morning without even looking for it, right? If she hadn't fallen in the doorway, he probably would have left without even picking up the body. And when he sees her lying there, there's no concern. There's no question of, hey, are you okay? Can you get up? None of that. Just get up. Let's go. And to make things worse, he then takes the body and dismembers it and mails it to the rest of the tribe of Israel. Right? Every single thing he is doing is, is a clear violation of the laws that God has established for his people. And clearly, they are evil acts. There's no question. 
when he's desecrating a body, he's not giving any of the burial rights. He's not respecting the fact that this was a person at all. Obviously, there is no love or compassion there whatsoever. I mean, this is a sociopath. And you get to the end of that chapter, and, and the people, you know, they receive these body parts in the mail, and they're appalled. And you think, great, they're mad that someone would mail them a body part. But no, that's not why they're upset at all, is it? No. You keep reading in, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing had happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. No mention, by the way, of how he tossed her to the crowd. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. So here he is, and he just flat out admits what he's done. Right? He doesn't admit that he threw her to the crowd to be abused all night long, but he, doesn't, he admits that he took the body and hacked it up and mailed it to all of them. I mean, this is a difficult story to read. And what's truly astonishing is there is no sense that, there, that at any moment that the people of Israel are upset that this Levite would behave the way he did. All their outrage is directed at the Benjaminites, right? That the people who committed one of the two crimes that has happened here. And so they agree that they're going to raise an army and they're going to go up and bring justice to the people who've killed this woman. And so we pick up in verse 16. No, we don't. We pick up in verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjaminites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjaminites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjaminites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord, 
In those days, the ark of the covenant of God was there, with Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Then Israel set up an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjaminites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjaminites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other leading to Gibeah. While the Benjaminites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjaminites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjaminites, all armed with swords. It's a lot. It's this picture of rage and vengeance and, and violence. And it's significant that God does not give the, the Israelites an easy victory. In fact, he makes them lose twice. Because the Benjaminites are not the only bad guys in the story. You know, when we read any story, we want there to be a hero who we can side with and we can cling on to that person and no matter how dark the story gets, we can at least say we know this guy's in the right. We want him to win. It's easy for us to follow that. If it's not one guy, we want there to be like one side that we can, we can choose, a clear, like the clear good guys who we can follow along with and we can cheer for them and we can root for them. We're desperate for that. And the problem when we read the book of Judges is there are no good guys. Not by this point in the story. There is no hero. There is no one side you should be picking over the other because they're all evil. They're all equally bad. That's why it's so hard to read it and process what you're reading because none of them are good. The Levite's not a hero. He's just as guilty in the death of his wife as the people who raped her are. And the people of Israel should have recognized that. but they don't. It is a dark and disturbing story. And after they win this battle, the violence will spiral out of control. It will kill so many people of the tribe of Benjamin that that tribe is on the verge of extinction. They nearly wipe them out completely. So much so that they actually have to start planning out how they're going to arrange marriages to make sure that that bloodline stays intact when this war is over. And of course, the great irony in all of that story is that they passed by the Canaanite city because they didn't know what would happen if they stayed there and deliberately went to a city full of their own people hoping for a safe harbor. There's a phrase that gets repeated over and over in these last few chapters of Judges. And actually the book ends on it. The very last verse of Judges is the same phrase that gets repeated all over. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So Judges begins with Israel uniting to fight their enemies, and it ends with them fighting amongst themselves. 
It begins with no leader in Israel. And even though there are 14 different judges named throughout the story, it ends with no leader in Israel. The covenant that the people of Israel make with God before they even come into the promised land is very clear that God is their king. So you can read this refrain of there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw fit and you can read it as this thing looking forward to the days when there will be a king and the kings of Israel will restore order and peace and unity. And and there's truth in that. The first three kings at least of Israel will do a pretty good job of unifying the people and, and bringing peace and stability. But the actual point of that refrain being repeated over and over again is to remind you, the reader, that God was their king and they rejected him. There was no king in Israel because they said they did not want to live under his rule anymore. And with each act of rebellion in the story, the cancer grows. Each generation is successively more rebellious, more evil than their ancestors. It's as if they are fueled by the rebellion of their parents' generation, and it gets worse and worse over time. And what started out as small acts of disobedience spiral out of control by the end of the book. In a sense, that is the story of the entire Old Testament and of the whole Bible, that small acts of disobedience lead to bigger ones, which lead to bigger ones, until everything spirals out of control. See, what God wants from his people, both in Old Testament times and now, is commitment. He wants his people to serve and love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And as soon as we begin to take that commitment and that relationship lightly, we begin the downward spiral that leads to death. And it reminds you of the moment in in Joshua before they cross into the promised land where Joshua tells them, choose this day whom you will serve. They choose poorly. And that, even in and of itself, points back to the passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is telling these people, I'm setting before you blessings and curses, life and death. Choose the one you want. And they choose death. God is the God of creation. He's the God of life. And see, the the challenge that we have is that it is really easy to get yourself started on that downward spiral. Because small little things that you don't think are that big of a deal. They lead to bigger things and bigger things and bigger things. And look, if this hasn't happened to you, you know someone who has had a moment in their life where things have spiraled out of control, and it started small, didn't it? A couple of relatively insignificant choices that created a domino effect. It happens in every area of our lives. And almost all of us have experienced it firsthand in one way or another, big or small. But that's what happens to the people of Israel. Relatively small choices 
led to worse ones and to worse ones and to worse ones. Until the story ends with this civil war that almost wipes out an entire tribe of their people. And that's the message of Judges. Don't take that commitment lightly. Because God is the God of life. And that's what he has to offer, is life. But it is so easy to start yourself down the wrong path. And human history is full of examples of that happening. The Bible is full of examples of that happening. And it will happen again and again and again until Jesus comes. The hope of the gospel is that now there is a king. But you can still start yourself on that downward spiral. Don't take it lightly. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.